Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Wiser Financial Advisor Show with Josh Nelson, where we get real, we get honest, and we get clear about the financial world and your money. This is Josh Nelson, founder and CEO of Keystone Financial Services. Let the financial fun begin. We always do a halftime presentation. Really, we could probably give this presentation every day and it will be a little bit different though, right? Because market changes, the economy changes, very, very dynamic environment right now. So uh, news is coming out every day and we want to be able to share not only our insights, but also share the experts that we pay attention to. And, you know, even experts that we uh, maybe not agree with. In some cases, it's not just uh, us looking for confirmation of what we already believe. We want to see diverging opinions opinions and we certainly want to be able to uh, pass it on to you because the fact is that nobody knows. So as we get going here, uh, first thing is very, very important. We want to make sure that the uh, the attorneys are happy, right? Uh, this is our disclosure slide at the beginning, which more or less says that the stuff that we're talking about today is not guaranteed. All the information that you're getting more or less is just Jeremy and myself and our opinions, right, of what we're seeing. So we want to give you some honest perspective. Uh, there's risk with any kind of investments, of course. So um, read that quickly and away we go. Today, the agenda, as oftentimes, is the case. The agenda is going to be three things. We're going to talk about the economy, going to talk about the markets, and what may be ahead, and the key is may, right, because there's all kinds of stuff that we don't know. I think uh, we, we know uh, from the last few years that there's been a lot of changes in the world, and uh, we're definitely going to go through that to give you some comparison. First part of that is that really, if you look at what happened up until this year, really, is that we had a lot of tailwinds supporting the economy, especially in the U.S., and so we had the Fed um, and Congress both spending trillions of dollars, injecting trillions of dollars into the economy. So this is before uh, the recent bill that was passed here a few days ago, but fiscal stimulus so far has been five. 5.7 trillion. I think uh, I'm not sure what the size of this recent bill was. I know there was different versions of it, but that'll certainly tack on some more stimulus going into the economy. Uh, monetary policy had expanded by 40%. In other words, the money supply increased by 40% in the COVID era. In other words, the Fed was doing what was called quantitative easing. They were printing a bunch of money uh, to keep it simple. And it actually increased our money supply by 40%. So in other words, of all the dollars that have ever been printed in the United States, those increased by 40% over the last couple of years. No wonder we're having an inflation issue right now. Uh, COVID-19 cases slowed. Um, certainly that was welcome. Uh, you don't really even hear that term very much anymore. Uh, really COVID, right? Uh, it's kind of old news, but certainly had a huge impact on the economy before. And then geopolitical stability, and this is not now, this is before, right, is geopolitical stability where uh, really we weren't seeing a lot of craziness, uh, especially coming out of COVID. Uh, that was mostly what was interrupting everything uh, with supply chain issues. So geopolitical stability, in other words, people weren't fighting yet at that point. So looking at the recession that started here this year, and you say recession, really? Yes. And you can see on the bars, the gray bars that go throughout this chart that we've indicated, what it does is it shows you when we've had recessions. So you'll note the bar in 2020, obviously the economy slowed way down with COVID shutdowns, lockdowns, whatever you want to call them. Economic activity went way, way down. But here at the beginning of the year, we actually saw one quarter of negative growth. And now since we actually designed this slide, 
side, another quarter of negative growth has hit. So technically, depending on what definition of recession that you use, technically we're in a recession right now. The interesting thing, though, is that the economic data really are telling a different story. And so people are kind of confused. How could this be a recession? Because the purchasing managers index is above 50. That's an indicator of how well the economy is growing. In other words, uh, activity is strong right now overall. No surprise. I think you know we could look at lots of examples of that. Uh, job growth uh, still is strong. Uh, in fact, better than expected report came out this last week. So job growth is very strong. The unemployment rate, um, it, it was low. It still is low at 3.6 when we designed the slide. Again, now 3.5%. And the fourth bullet, I think, is pretty important in the labor force participation is up. In other words, the percentage of the population population that's able to work and are they working or not. And so where that's coming from is not only people coming off of the unemployment rules, but also it's coming from people going back to work where they may have retired uh, during the COVID era. Some people left their job. Uh, they went home for various reasons. And I think largely because of inflation, a lot of people are kind of looking at that again and saying, maybe I, I do want to go back and work in some capacity. And then consumer spending uh, was rising, continues to rise. People have a lot of money to spend right now, and they are. If you've been to an airport uh, recently, it's crazy. Um, you know, with all the lost luggage, all the stories over the summer, a lot of, of travelers, not enough workers, not enough uh, capacity, in other words, to be able to handle the demand for what people want to do. So there's a quote that we had uh, from Diane Swank. Uh, the story is fairly straightforward. The Omicron wave, the war in Ukraine, and new lockdowns in China took a greater toll on growth abroad than at home. So there was an impact from all these things, but it hasn't impacted the United States really to a large degree at this point. Then, of course, things shifted, and that's kind of looking at this year, is that we have now geopolitical instability. And again, we designed this slide before the, the Taiwan uh, stuff and Nancy Pelosi visiting and uh, all the military exercises over there. So things have become less stable even since we designed this slide. Uh, but the story earlier on in the first half of the year was Ukraine uh, still continues to be Ukraine and Russia, and that does not look like it's going to settle down anytime soon. Uh, China lockdowns, that was because of a wave and their response uh, to a, a wave of COVID in China. Um, so lockdowns certainly interrupted supply chains more than they already have been. Uh, economic activity was interrupted. Uh, fiscal stimulus ends, and so we'll talk about that a bit more. Um, now, we just saw a bill pass, right? So we just saw a bill that actually injects some additional stimulus into the economy, but for the most part, it had ended up until this point. And of course, now the Fed is tightening. So raising interest rates, in other words, uh, trying to contract uh, inflation, but also when that happens, it typically contracts the size of the economy as well and the pace of growth. So looking at inflation, you might be surprised by these numbers. Note that the PCE price index is what we're using here is not the consumer price index. And I guess this goes off into wonky financial land for those of you who aren't familiar with these things. Basically, they're measures of inflation. They're measures of how expensive is stuff getting at this point. And regardless of which index you look at, it's definitely been up. We, we've seen a big increase in inflation in goods and services. The PCE index is much broader. That's why we like to use that as opposed to the consumer price index uh, versus the PCE index is going to be looking at the entire country, including rural areas. 
the consumer price index just looks at cities. It excludes things like healthcare spending and insurance premiums, things like that. So we like to use the PCE uh, much, much higher than historically what we've seen. So uh, that has not been a welcome thing. I think for consumers seeing the gas pump, the food prices, things like that. Uh, you certainly are seeing an impact and uh, and, and it's uh, not causing people to not spend money, but it's certainly resulting in people shifting how they're spending money. So when you look at the polling data, uh, you can see from the last couple of years, inflation now clearly is on people's minds. When you look at all the different concerns that people have uh, just in their individual lives, in other words, problems that they're facing, inflation, cost of living, keeping up with that because wage growth is not, uh, you know, again, if you want to go look at CPI or PCE, uh, job growth is not keeping up. Income is not keeping up with the price increases that most people are seeing right now in their day-to-day -day lives. So that certainly is been a challenge uh, for people. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if this trend that we've seen over the last few weeks, at least, is that uh, inflation seems to be showing signs of uh, maybe have already peaked. In fact, we saw uh, headlines today, markets way up. We saw uh, today the um, uh, inflation figures came out. Consumer price index was released at eight and a half percent, where it had been over nine percent before. I think there's some hope that uh, inflation may have already peaked and that will be going down from here. Now, eight percent, nine percent, six percent, even those are high numbers. Those are not numbers that are sustainable. And so the Fed uh, is not going to back off. They're still going to keep in increasing uh, interest rates to tighten things up. But it might be a positive sign that they may not have to be as aggressive as what um, what we thought they might be. Uh, again, polling data, and you can just think about this in your individual life as far as what you do, the decisions that you make related to inflation. And when you look at the data here, overwhelmingly people say that they're they're pickier now. They're actually taking the time to look for cheaper products to actually do price comparisons where maybe it wasn't as important before. Some people are delaying planned purchases. Uh, could be vehicles, furniture, other stuff that they might be buying uh, because of inflation. In other words, people are now holding off on spending. Also, it could be because they're um, they're thinking that prices might come down in the future. Um, maybe we'll see. Uh, people are saving less because they're spending more of it. Right? They they still want to be able to do stuff, travel. So people aren't saving as much as they had been. Savings rate went through the roof, by the way, uh, during the COVID era. Uh, following COVID, a lot of people's budgets uh, suddenly became quite good if they were still employed. Uh, people had a lot of money because they weren't driving. Uh, they probably weren't running around shopping, maybe the e-commerce, but uh, people uh, just weren't spending as much money as they had been before. So that has changed driving less. Uh, again, numbers are not great there because gas is still very expensive. Even at four bucks a gallon, that's where we're kind of settling at right now where it had been more like $5 a gallon, uh, $4 a gallon is still double what it had been a year ago, right? So we're still looking at a much, much higher level of cost for uh, fuel prices. And then buying products in anticipation of prices going up, not as strong of a number there, but that's where it can be kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy with inflation. You'll see in the quote here through Barron's, uh, the situation has been termed inflationary psychology. That's because people start to anticipate and think, well, I, maybe I better stock up. In other words, I'm bacon or whatever it is that you're you're trying to stock up on because you're afraid that the price is going to go up even further. And then, of course, that constricts supply, which causes prices to go up even higher. Now, again, maybe we've already seen the peak of this, but you can see where things actually uh, can become self-fulfilling prophecies and actually feed on themselves in an inflationary situation. 
Fed is uh, tightening monetary policy. They have been. And uh, you can see the context of things, right? Looking back to the early 80s, late 70s, for those of you who remember those times. And I, I was alive then, uh, but I wouldn't have been thinking about the economy. <laughs> so uh, I certainly don't have memories of inflation. But, uh, you know, Jeremy and I are well studied and um, in the history books and the financial history books and know how bad inflation was and how high the Fed raised interest rates were far below that right now. Um, although we're, we're seeing that um, the, um, the interest rates are going to be going higher here over the next year or so. So the economic outlook over, overall, there's a few different scenarios that we're looking at. Uh, soft landing, stagflation, and recession. And nobody knows. Again, it doesn't matter how smart of an economist you are, or how much information you've got. There's too many factors out there. And so nobody knows for sure what's going to happen. One possibility is a soft landing. And that is possible, right, is that the economy slows down, inflation falls quite a bit, and that we don't actually end up with a recession. Now, going back, you say, well, John, you just said that we're in a recession because we've had two negative quarters of GDP. Again, it depends on who you talk to, because believe it or not, there is more than one definition of a recession. If you look at all the economic activity out there, the fact that jobs pretty much are there for anybody who wants one, it may not be the job you want, but there's a job out there for you. Uh, that's a, a pretty rich environment with people having money in their pockets to spend. Uh, people have income right now. Uh, so we're not looking at, um, at a situation where we were in COVID, where the unemployment rate had spiked or other recessions, we tend to see that have happened in the past. So that's possible, but stagflation is also a possibility in that the economy slows or contracts, but inflation doesn't slow down. And that's a tricky situation. And we did see that back in the 1970s in that inflation didn't slow down. The economy is going backwards. So it basically means that uh, it's a really tough situation because the Fed, and this is how they responded in the late 70s, early 80s, finally, is that they raised interest rates to the roof, caused a really bad bad recession, but it did kill inflation. And really, for the last 40 years or so, we've had relatively low inflation up until now. In other words, up until the, the last year or so, inflation had been pretty muted. And then, of course, another possibility is recession and that the economy contracts and inflation slows. Um, so all these are possibilities right now. Uh, the, the ideal would be the soft landing, right? The first scenario is that the Fed gets things exactly right. And you don't have any shock events, other things, terrorist attacks, knock on wood, something like that, that, that throws things um, into a recession. So it is possible we get through this without things dramatically slowing down, but inflation slows down. Um, we don't think the likelihood is real high of that. Um, it's, it's probably more likely that we're going to see a scenario two or three, at least in the short term. So again, another quote, uh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Frankel from Harvard uh, said, so is the economy in a recession? Well, according to him, no. Uh, people are unhappy with inflation, which has recently been running its highest since 1982, again, 40 years ago. But inflation is a recession, which is defined as a significant decline in economic activity. And economic activity is not falling. I think we can all agree with that, is that economic activity is not falling right now. We're just not seeing that at this point. And again, to end his quote there, quite the contrary it is booming. So I'll hand it off to Jeremy to talk about the markets. Yeah. So what has happened in the first half here? And you know that uh, those darn bears, um, bear market officially, I think definitely we've hit that. Uh, but the things to keep in mind are kind of the process, what's happening and kind of where are we looking. Uh, so if we can go to the next slide there, Josh, uh really those poor bears imagine a bear sitting on a psychiatrist couch 
I really do want to make squirrel market a thing, you know, because if it feels like squirrel market really could be a thing, you know, like, oh, oh, look at this squirrel. Just look at the volatility that we have on a daily basis. I think that would make a lot of sense. We should, I'm going to yeah, make a sure would. Yeah, I think it would make sense for sure. Um, well, the fact of the matter is uh, it was definitely the worst first half in stocks for the about 50 years here. All right. Uh, so that's across all three of the major indexes, uh, you know, S&P, NASDAQ, Dow, they all kind of focus on things a little bit differently. But uh, overall, you can see the trends were really about the same, right? It was a pretty rough part in the first half. Um, the, the compound that a little bit more is there was really no safe place to go. Uh, if we look at the next one, we can see pretty much every major sector uh, took a hit, right? So a lot of the time, sometimes we can do things like we'll go into bonds, uh, you know, give you a little bit more downside protection, or we'll focus on a specific area. Uh, but unfortunately, kind of everything was down, right? It was um, in large part because interest rates and where they were starting. Uh, so that didn't help out the bond sector very much. Uh, there've been a couple things that have gone here and there, but really overall, uh, just about everything pretty much took a hit here. Mm -hmm. So there's no real safe place to go. So when that happens, uh, really what we have to focus on is more about the process of investing, right? Is, you know, maintaining the right asset allocation, making sure that your risk tolerance is in uh, in line with, with where you're comfortable at. And periodic rebalancing, just kind of uh, taking advantage where we can, little sector bets here or there, no major moves. But overall, data shows that that's actually a pretty good way to do things. Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of chime in here as well. It is, and this is kind of, uh, I think, educational in the sense that sometimes people can get the illusion, right, that they can time the market and that they can jump in and out of certain things. And oftentimes what people end up doing is they actually end up getting whipsawed in that they look at whatever has done badly recently and they want to sell it. And they look at what has been good recently and they want to buy it. So had you done that, in other words, had you... Had, on June 30th, that's when we ran the slide and the performance here. And so for those of you who are looking at these numbers, you say, wow, this has sure changed in the last few weeks. It has, uh, really the market has rallied quite well. Uh, most markets uh, have uh, shifted dramatically. But had you said, you know what, I'm gonna take that top performing sector, the energy sector or commodities in general, I'm going to put all my money there because that's what's doing good now. That would have been terrible, right? Because these numbers have gone just the opposite since then in that the stock market has, has really rallied overall and commodity prices have come way down. Now, does that mean that that's going to hold and that that trend is going to continue? Not necessarily, but I think it is educational in the sense that even the smartest people, uh, no matter how smart you think you are or how, what kind of technology or strategy is or anything, the likelihood that you're going to be able to time the market and get everything just right is very, very low. Yeah, absolutely. It's tough. And then you combine that also with this has literally been the uh, the third most volatile year in the market over the past 24 years. Uh, so you can see 63 moves this year of 1%. So that's days in the market, basically, where the S&P 500 moved 1%. That's up and down, right? Uh, 26 moves of 2% up and down, seven moves of 3%. So that's kind of, again, where that squirrel market comes in, right? Just these really volatile days where one day we're up 300 and the next day we're down 500. 
Um, lots of things kind of play into that, but it's the volatility, I think, that tends to make people pretty nervous, especially when we're talking about risk in the market, is yeah, how much think, volatility are you really comfortable with? Absolutely. Yeah. Just to chime down that, it, it, you know, how much are you comfortable with? It's kind of like flying, right? If you get on a commercial airliner, it doesn't matter if it's the best plane in the world, the biggest plane in the world with the best pilot. Um, it's you're still going to have turbulence. That's just part of the ride. That's just part of the experience. And if you're going to go to Europe or Asia or something like that, you're probably not going on a boat. Um, you, you're probably going to go on an aircraft. And so you just have to accept that that's part of the process or choose not to fly. Uh, the only people that get hurt in turbulence, usually, I mean, they're, they're once in a while, you know, there, there's some uh, injuries or something like that. Um, you know, the, the only way you get killed uh, when it comes to that is if you jump out of the plane. And that same thing would happen in the stock market, right? Is you see volatility and the market's down 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60%. In some markets, it gets that bad. The only people that lose money are the people who either they were very under diversified. In other words, they had all their eggs in one basket and that one thing went down and never came back. Or the people that get out and they sell when prices are low, they never have a chance at recovering when the recovery happens on the other end. Absolutely. Yep. So with all of that crazy first half, 50 years, lots of volatility, uh, but believe it or not, company earnings are still doing really well. Um, so like first quarter up 9.2%. Uh, second quarter was a little bit more muted. I think that was expected. Uh, but really, as far as estimates are going for the remainder of the year in the second half of the year, uh, I think we're still looking pretty good here as far as what S&P companies are looking at uh, as far as earnings. And to kind of take that a little bit further is a big indicator that we use here on the next slide is price to earnings ratios. And so uh, really, uh, when we talk about value, is the market overpriced or is the market underpriced, fairly priced? The historic average of the S&P 500 is about 16, all right, 15.97. So back in 2021, about June 30th, that price was about 26 and a half, right? So we would, so we could honestly say, we look back at that and we look at that and we say, yep, it, the market was probably overpriced, right? Uh, it had just come back from 2020 lows, uh, jumped up there and, and recovered really quick. Uh, now we can see that as of January, June 30th, 2022, that uh, price to earnings ratio is back down to about 19.3%. So I think the major Consensus here is that uh, PE ratio of 19% is actually a lot more in line with that historical average, which really suggests that everything is just about valued as it should be. Uh, so it's not overpriced, it's not underpriced, it's it's fairly priced. All right. Um, so here's a, a fun little quote by Paul Samuelson. He's a Nobel Prize winning economist. Uh, Let's check the math on this, by the way. The stock market has predicted nine out of the last five recessions. <laughs> we'll say that again. Predicted nine out of the last five recessions. So you're probably looking at that and you say, uh, Jeremy, Josh, how, how does that work, right? What's the math on that? Well, really, it's it's just kind of going to show that, uh, you know, every time something bad happens in the market or, geez, let's be honest, anytime anything is happening in the market, period, 
there's always some naysayer out there that's saying, oh, this is going to be bad. That's where it's going to lead us to this. It's going to lead us to that. Uh, if we actually check Paul's uh, stats here on the next slide, we can actually see that in essence, he's not, he's not definitely wrong. Right. So uh, when he wrote this in 1966, uh, the, the, Stats said that there had been nine bear markets. All someone in all of those bear markets was basically saying this is going to lead to a recession. Five times they were right out of those nine times, giving about a 55% chance of being right. Uh, if we look back, let's go to 2016, there had been 13 bear markets, and seven of those turned into recessions, right? So if we kind of look at the stats overall, you got about a 50-50 chance. So I think a lot of that's just people out there saying, hey, let's flip the coin. Maybe maybe we'll be right. If we're right, then we can kind of tout it and say, yep, we called this recession. We knew it was going to happen. Uh, but really what it's, it's saying is not every bear market leads to a recession. Uh, not every recession is an equal recession either, right? Um, there are some shallow ones. There are some bad ones. Uh, there's a lot more things to kind of keep in mind, but uh, overall, no one can really predict it 100% of the time. Yeah, and to update the, the number too, of course, now that we're in 2022, and again, technically mm -hmm. we're in a recession, again, depends on who you want to talk to. Uh, we really hadn't had a recession for quite some time up until that point. This is all kind of tracking in what we call the post-war era, which would be post-World War II era, mm -hmm. this kind of tracking back. So now we would be, uh, how many more bear markets since 2016? Two, right? We had the, the COVID uh, drop, and then we saw the drop earlier this year, which again, we've been trending back up right now, but a, a market drop of over 20% is defined as a bear market. So, um, and yes, I guess technically, if you want to use the two negative quarters of GDP, you'd say eight recessions, so 15 bear markets and eight recessions, but those ratios are still pretty consistent. Yeah, that 53% is still 53%. Mm -hmm. So go figure. Yeah. Um, so one of the kind of key indicators that you'll hear a lot about and that we do focus on is kind of bonds, right? And, and what's happening in the bonds. So we are in a bear market for bonds. Um, but really, what does that what does that mean? Right. Uh, so if we look at kind of that this this next part of the information, uh, on the next slide here, Josh, the we talk about yield curve, and I, you've probably heard things about yield curve. I don't know if you know exactly what a yield curve is, but uh, the reason why we look at it is because thanks to the central position of the dollar in the global financial system, it does work as a bit of a barometer uh, for investors mm -hmm. as to what's kind of happening in the in the economy and where is it going. Uh, and so if we if we look at what the yield curve is right now on that next slide, um, typically a, a, a good yield curve, you know, it's it starts on the bottom left and it kind of jumps up and goes to the right a little bit. Uh, a nice uh, a nice curve there. Right. What that means is that uh, if you were to throw your money in treasuries, you would expect to get a higher rate of interest on, say, a 20 year treasury bond than a two-month treasury bond, right? You're tying your money up for longer. You want to get paid for it. So what happens on an inverted yield curve is that that curve kind of splits. So the very short-term rates are higher 
than those long-term rates. There's a lot of math that really goes into that, but the reason people look at the yield curve and why it's used is because uh, a lot of the time, if that yield curve does invert, it does kind of point us. It's a it's been a pretty good indicator over the years that that we're heading towards kind of a downturn uh, for a little bit. So really, what we're looking at now, or as as of this slide, um, we're not inverted as of yet. Um, it is pretty flat, actually, Josh. If you can go back to that one really quick. Yeah. Um, the the key here is if we look at say the difference between a two year interest rate at 2.92 and a 10 year at 2.98 that really suggests that it's flattening out right so it's not inverted yet it's flattening out uh so it kind of does give us some indication but not necessarily assured that hey we're in an inverted yield curve and and things are pointing downwards yeah okay. it's just one thing that people look at and and economists and experts um, you know which would include us right as we look at lots of different things so this is definitely one that uh, it's worth looking at though it's one indicator mm-hmm. definitely worth keeping an eye on but on the bright side uh you know we can look back we like we like our history we like looking at data and whatnot um the between the bull and the bear markets uh bears don't last forever and on the nice side, bull markets usually tend to last a lot longer than your typical bears. Uh, so we can see a lot of good returns here. Um, last ones, you know, the ones that kind of fit more recently, of course, uh, 2000, we had a bear market where everything was down about 49%. Uh, that following bull market gained 102 or 2007 uh, bear market was down 57%. That was a pretty big one, right? Everybody could kind of feel that one. And then the following bull market, which was the longest bull market in the history of the markets, was up 401%. Uh, So you can see that pretty much happens each and every time, really, as we kind of cruise forward. Uh, So definitely bright spots on the horizon. It's one of those things where we got to kind of maintain. This is where I think we earn a lot of our money is because... uh, you know, we get to be that voice of reason and say, hey, trust the process. We have the long term plan. We know it's going to come back around. It's just a matter of being able to weather it. And if your risk score is set appropriately, then this shouldn't be anything more than kind of a bit of an uncomfortable time. Uh, in your investing life. Yeah, there's definitely some psychology into this. I think just as humans, we tend to extrapolate whatever's happening right now. We tend to extrapolate that and say, well, that's going to continue. Uh, But that's not how life works. That's not how the economy works. So uh, yeah, bulls don't last forever, neither do bears. And it's important to recognize that, especially on the extremes, right? If the market's gone up, 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 up for a long time, whatever market you're looking at, whether it's crypto or real estate or the stock market, if it's just gone up, 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 it's something to at least think about, hmm, maybe this won't last forever. Maybe it's actually overpriced. Um, and same on the opposite end of things. And, you know, in, in 2008, 2009, I remember having lots of conversations with people um, in that negative 57% that you see there, lots of conversations with people. And uh, fortunately, most people, um, you know, took our advice and they decided not to bail. Uh, but there were some people that did. And it was actually really sad because, uh, you know, th- things uh, not only turned around, but not only did they lose over half their money because they locked in that loss, but then they missed out on the 400% plus that happened happened after that. So um, something, you know, permanent loss, in other words, and a permanent loss of opportunity. So it's really, really important uh, to make sure that you've got, um, you've got wise counsel throughout all this. 
Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, kind of a parting thought, a parting stat for you guys. Um, according to uh, the company we we like to listen to and a lot of their research, Zach's, uh, they had a nice fun statistic that said every time the S&P was down by 15% in the first half of the year, it rallied in the second half of the year. And so I think we're kind of seeing some of that right now. Who knows yeah, how far hope. that'll go or how long <laughs> it'll last. We're holding out hope, but uh it's it's a good indicator here. And and there is a lot of bright spots, even even amidst all the craziness and volatility. Yep, absolutely. All right. So again, what may be ahead, that's the the big emphasis. We should have put that in bold and highlighted it and everything, what may be ahead. Uh, global economic growth. This The expectations are that global economic growth is going to slow. Now, you see a couple of outliers here, uh, Europe, uh, especially emerging Europe, which would be Eastern Europe, and they've got some stuff going on right now, right? And uh, Ukraine being a, a fairly large portion of that economy um, certainly has been massively disrupted. And then, of course, Russian, uh, the Russian economy is taking a big hit as well. But if you kind of push those aside as outliers, right, look at the rest of the world, expectations are that things will continue to uh, to slow down. Um, some is that we're not the only central bank, in other words, that's tightening and uh, trying to pull back inflation. Other countries have also experienced that same thing um, and are trying to, to also pull back inflation in their markets. So we expect that that's going to continue. Uh, we're in Ukraine, uh, of course, uh, this is not old news. Uh, it's just out of the headlines, I think, for the most part, because other things have kind of jumped up. Uh, but certainly it's caused, caused food shortages. Uh, this past week, I, I think it was the first actual container ship that went out uh, with grain. Finally, uh, there, there was a uh, agreement reached. Uh, they actually produce a lot of sunflower oil and wheat and barley. Uh, who would have known, right, that so much agriculture came out of Ukraine and Russia? Uh, but that seems to have worked itself out a bit, um, right? So big implications there. Energy shortages. And the nice thing about commodities is uh, it, it, commodities traders, uh, an old maxim is that the best cure for high prices is high prices, right? Because if it gets really profitable to produce natural gas, oil, corn, whatever it happens to be, well, you'll get people will produce a lot more of it then, right? To uh, to make money, they're going to take advantage of it. And so, um, you know, we've probably seen some of that, um, right? And, and sometimes in uh, commodities, they also will get run up because of what we had said before. For, right, uh, as it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where prices keep going up, 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 and then you know they come back down. We've seen that in a number of commodities over the last few weeks. So um, at the World Bank, one quote there is followers from the Russian Federation's invasion of Ukraine are set to sharply hasten the deceleration of global economic activity. And again, I think you could throw in uh, even Taiwan and, and, uh, and China, too, right? And uncertainty there. It just interrupts things. It, it, it interrupts movement of goods and services. It uh, also, in the mind of other governments, of businesses, it's disruptive. It makes them pause, right, as far as making investments or making decisions. So overall, uh, you know, certainly is disruptive and we continue to, to be watching that. Uh, not something we can control, of course, but it's a risk. 
So COVID lockdowns in China, again, that could continue, say if there's another wave and they respond the same way that they have this past time, lockdowns uh, from a very, very large manufacturing country uh, do make a big difference worldwide. So we'll have to keep watching that. That also could be very disruptive. We still have not gotten our supply chains back to where they were before COVID. And it's going to take years when you think about the complexity of supply chains and examples we could use like vehicles, right? Uh, is we saw all kinds of vehicle shortages over the past couple of years because they may have been missing one chip or two chips or something like that uh, to be able to complete the vehicle. And so a lot of uh, auto manufacturers were actually shutting down factories, at least temporarily, because they couldn't get the parts. They couldn't get what they needed to be able to produce the goods. Uh, so certainly a lot of changes there. But uh, supply chains are a, a major factor in the disruption of uh, the global economy. Yeah, and that could continue right if there's more lockdowns in China. Uh, possibility of a Fed Reserve policy mistake, that's actually pretty possible uh, because historically the Fed uh, does tend to uh, to raise rates too much in a tightening cycle. Uh, they oftentimes, uh, oftentimes tend to raise too much, at least over the last 40 years or so. Uh, back in the 70s, uh, it's actually that second bullet point that they raised rates too slowly. They, they uh, did not respond aggressively enough. And so you had ended up with a, a decade of stagflation, right? Uh, persistent inflation and lower economic growth growth or disjointed economic growth. Uh, so it, it's it's possible, right? They have to kind of thread the needle here because if they tighten too much, it could cause a bad recession. If they don't tighten enough, then we could end up with persistent inflation. And again, even though the numbers that were reported today are lower than what we saw uh, last time around, that's still way too high. You, you don't want an economy that has that high of inflation, especially when economic growth is not growing that fast. That is stagflation, right? You're going backwards effectively because your economy is not growing as fast as you price increases. So uh, they've got a tricky, uh, tricky thing to navigate here, certainly, but be watching the Fed. Uh, certainly, there's a possibility that they accomplish the soft landing that we talked about before, uh, but history would not um, uh, substantiate that there's a high possibility of that happening. We hope we're wrong on that. Investor behavior is always a risk. Uh, man, you can see a despondent baseball team here, uh, you know, sports psychology. When people get into a slump, it can kind of feed on itself, uh, right? And, and uh, sometimes you'll end up with golfers, batters, pitchers, all kinds of different sports uh, professionals that they get into a slump and the psychology ends up messing them up. And oftentimes that's what we end up seeing is that people end up becoming their worst enemy as investors and uh, they start to extrapolate. Again, I talked about that before the market's volatile, the market's going down and people see their statements and they start to think, well, maybe things are going to keep going this way. I'm going to lose all my money. These are the sorts of things that people say when they're panicking. So it's important to make sure that your investor behavior is not throwing you off. The average investor does very badly over time. They actually done studies on this. Morningstar has done studies that show that the average investor return is less than half of the stock market return. In other words, just looking at long-term stock market history, average investor does terrible because they tend to do the exact opposite of what they should be. They Instead of buying low and selling high, and that's what you're supposed to do, right? Uh, they actually do the opposite. They, they want to buy high, sell low. As we sit here on this webinar, you say, well, that's crazy. Why would anybody want to do that? 
Well, because they get scared or they get greedy. That happens too. We saw that in cryptocurrency over the last couple of years and uh, you know those markets and uh, securities, coins, whatever you want to call them, uh, many of which have gone to zero or completely blown up. Uh, so people get caught up in these things because they don't want to miss out you know, or people, uh, you know, they're, they're afraid of losing all their money. They, they're afraid that they're going to make a big mistake by not getting out to losing more money. So it's very, very important to recognize uh, that again, bear markets don't last forever, uh, but they certainly test investors. They, they test all of us, right? Even as professionals, because really there's three things that you can do when you have a bear market or a correction or whatever you're in, you could sell, you could bail out and say, all right, I'm out of here. Um, I'll wait until things get better. Well, that rarely happens, right? It rarely happens that people get the timing right on that. So you could stay invested, of course, and just to kind of ride through it. And I'd say that's what the majority of people that, that we talk to do is that they they let things ride and uh, try to ignore it. Uh, we have so many clients that say, you know what, I'm not even watching it right now. I'm not even getting into my account and logging in and that sort of thing, because I know in the long run, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just going to stress me out. Not bad. You know, that's their opinion, not mine. That uh, That's one way that you could respond to it. Third thing is you could look at it as an opportunity in that something's on sale, right? If prices have gone down, that means that something's on sale. And it doesn't mean it can't get cheaper. And that's important to recognize uh, is that the market could go down. It can go down more and it can go down more and it can go down more. And that's in a couple of those really bad bear markets we saw on the slide before that Jeremy was showing early 2000s. You had three negative years, the year 2000, the year 2001, the year 2002. All three were negative years in the stock market, culminating in about a 50% loss overall. So I know some of you were around back then. I was. I was a new financial professional at the time. But I remember oh, stocks are on sale, you know, in 2000 after dot-coms blew up. Okay, and then 2001 and 9-11 hits and we go into a bad recession. Stocks are even more on sale. And then in 2002, the accounting scandals with Arthur Anderson and Enron and WorldCom, uh, then the market went down even more. So it required a lot of patience, but looking for opportunities for people who you know, kind of kept going, especially if they were still working, if they were putting money away, they saw it as an opportunity. Uh, you may be retired and say, well, yeah, I'm not at the point where I can put more money in at this point. But we've seen a lot of our clients contact us proactively the first half of the year and said, you know what, I've got enough money in cash right now. I'm just going to live off of that for a while. I'm not spending a ton of money. I don't want to be taking a lot of money out of my portfolio, or they might have reduced the amount by putting off some purchases, they might have reduced the amount that they're pulling out of their investments. So uh, certainly there are planning opportunities that can be used. And we may not be able to control the market. We can't control politics and the economy, but there's a lot of things that we can control. And that's how we're responding to those things. So it's very important that uh, you're thinking of that, again, back to that baseball example with the, the psychology, uh, people can really get thrown off. And, and that's why sports psychologists exist, right? Is that you get somebody who's trained in that and they're able to kind of talk them back to where they were before and they start producing again. So there may never have been a more important time. Of course, this is a bit self-serving, but we truly believe this in our hearts that uh, that you're probably going to do better. You're going to do better with a competent uh, financial professional. And if that's us, great. Uh, if it's not, there are a lot of other good uh, advisors and planners out there. Just make sure that you're working with somebody who's a certified financial planner. We always want to stress that because there are a lot of uh, requirements that come with that. And it's the high level, the gold standard when it comes to financial services and financial planners. So it is a really good time to be working with a planner, not only because 
it's useful in your life. We find that a lot of people end up finding uh, finding a lot less stress in their life, regardless of what's happening in the world, because they say, you know what, we're paying you to worry about it. Uh, we're going to go live our life and do our thing. So, but also we can help you avoid big mistakes. We can't make guarantees, but we can help you avoid some big mistakes based on our experience and based on what we're seeing. Having that third party is pretty important. Having somebody else who can kind of see things from a different perspective. If people get on their own, and of course this happens, this is why there's so many counselors and psychologists and all kinds of things, right? Uh, because it sometimes it helps to get a different perspective from somebody else. So uh, what the experts say, we'll kind of wrap things up and do some Q&A. Uh, we've got a quote from Barron's here. The first half of the year was terrible. And yes, it was. We saw the numbers before. Worst in decades for stocks. Arguably the biggest single cause of the misery was the spike in oil prices. Russia's invasion of Ukraine accelerated a rise that was already building as the world emerged from the pandemic. To be sure, a lot of damage has already been done by high energy prices. But if they fall back soon, which actually we're seeing that, right? They haven't fallen all the way back down, but we've seen that as history suggests, they should, the second half of 22 should be much better than most people currently expect. That's important because high energy prices, it's kind of like a tax on everybody. Uh, it's a tax on businesses, it's a tax on consumers. So uh, certainly it was a big drag on the economy in the first half. Uh, it's very difficult. Uh, here's a quote from Morgan Stanley. It is very difficult to, to resist the temptation to draw parallels with the 1970s. And again, I know some of you were around then and probably remember some of that. But consider the following. In the 1970s, anyone 40 or older had already seen three episodes of inflation comparable to that of the present day. Today's 40-year-olds have seen nothing comparable. And uh, I'm in that category, the 40s. <laughs> and in fact, are more familiar with deflationary trends than inflationary ones. In 1970, the thought must have been, here we go again, whereas today the question is, what's next? And finally, again, a quote from Barron's, we can certainly hope for a soft landing this time around, but in my 35 years in this business, hope is rarely an effective investment strategy. The backdrop is one of a peak in the liquidity and economic cycle, and what follows is the natural expunging of the excesses, and we're seeing this, right? We've, we've seen this over the past uh, 12 months, meme stocks, cryptocurrencies, speculative NASDAQ 100, which largely would be big tech stocks, even residential real estate, which is in a huge price bubble of its own. That's their opinion, not ours necessarily, but they believe that we're in a real estate bubble. And then the rebirth, that's really the key is the rebirth. That's what we're concerned about is not so much what's going on today or next week or next month. Really, it's about the rebirth because you go through bad economies, right? You go through tough economies. Uh, if that's what you want to think of this as, uh, it's just uncertainty. But eventually, things kind of clear themselves out. And in the end, no matter how bad the problems are that uh, we've had in this world, uh, they, they do tend to work themselves out and we kind of move on. Sometimes they're really bad, like the financial crisis. And we remembered that. You know, I, I think most people aren't going to forget the financial crisis crisis. Most markets, most uh, rough spots that we end up happening, uh, you know, people don't even remember that it happened and we kind of move on to the next thing. So before we go to Q&A, we always want to make sure that we introduce you to our team. We're here to serve you. Uh, if you are our client, thank you for your business. As always, we know you put a lot of your confidence, your trust in us to be able to help you navigate these waters. 
we've got a team of 10 uh, and three of us are certified financial planners. Uh, so uh, that is uh, great, uh, Jeremy and Peter and myself, and then a great support team that helps you on a day-to-day basis. So uh, we are here to serve you, uh, not just you, but also to your friends, your family, your coworkers, anybody who needs help. We always want to be here as a resource. So uh, we may not be able to work with everybody. We may not be right for everybody as far as them hiring us as their financial advisor, their financial planner. We want to make sure that people understand that we're here as a resource. If we can spend five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes with somebody on the phone, help them talk through something. Maybe that's your kid. Maybe it's a coworker. We just want to be that resource because there's so much misinformation out there. There's so much confusion. There's a million pieces of information out there on the internet. Uh, Lots of it is just crap, right? And, And really hard to decipher how people should actually go about their lives and the financial decisions that they should make. So uh, thank you again. If you're our client, thank you. And if you are our future client, uh, thank you as well. We'll look forward to working with you uh, here down the road. I also wanted to go over really quickly as uh, you are putting questions, by the way, uh, we're not letting people talk verbally, but if you could type your questions into the Q&A, this is a really good time to do that. You'll see that we actually designed this piece to give you an idea of what we do. And I think this is really the best illustration that we've created that says why work with us in other words what's different about us versus any other financial firm that first column there that investment planning column is very important reviewing your allocation making sure that your risk is is uh, analyzed so you know how much risk you're taking and so forth all good stuff we do all that but we also do all the other columns as well and most financial advisors planners in our experience really just cover that first left-hand column but that's just one part of your financial life. Taxes can make a huge difference, deciding when you're going to take your social security, deciding uh, how you can get your debt paid off, deciding what employee benefits you should be taking advantage of. Uh, so there's all kinds of stuff that fall in on here. As you can see, not all of these things will be relevant to you at all times. So that's why this is called financial planning, not just a financial plan. This is financial planning because your financial life changes over time, your job and your family, all kinds of stuff that ends up happening. We want to make sure that we're there to support you through all of it and make great decisions that are right for you. So with that being said, let, uh, let us open it up for questions and uh, a few disclosures here at the end, uh, some of our um, references, things like that. Jeremy, what do we have for questions? Absolutely. So we got a couple of them on the docket right here. Right. Um, first and foremost, I love this question. Uh, Brian asks, is it possible that it could be best for the U.S. economy long term for a short non-crippling recession to curb this out of control inflation? Because it appears that unchecked inflation is really the biggest risk to a full-scale implosion of our economy. Um, yeah, I'll chime in first on that. Um, so yes, I mean, ultimately, uh, that's one of the policy risks that we mentioned before is that inflation starts to slow, like we saw today, the, the recent number, inflation starts to slow, uh, economic growth starts to, to slow down, maybe the unemployment rate starts to go up. Now, all of a sudden, there's some political pressure on the Fed that, gosh, maybe we should slow down the rate increases, maybe we shouldn't tighten as much. And that's what they did back in most of the 70s is that they kind of lost their nerve, in other words. And so it may have been a temporary reprieve, um, you know, which, you know, I think short term people kind of like it because oh, the market went back up or whatever. 
But if it doesn't kill inflation and we just end up with this persistent inflation every year, well, then you do end up with stagflation. You end up effectively going backwards. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that short term pain ultimately uh, we'll see. I mean, the, the Fed uh, uh, chairman, Jerome Powell, he's made comments on a number of occasions that uh, basically say he will not back off. He will make sure that inflation gets gets licked here. Um, and so they they won't back off until they're sure that inflation is down into a more sustainable um, rate. I think they're targeting, they'd like to be down in the two to 3% range. Uh, we think it's more likely three to 4% uh, will be the um, kind of where we end up settling down on. But we'll see. Again, things change. There could be political pressure, uh, whether it be uh, just kind of social pressure from the president or Congress or whatever. Uh, sometimes uh, that requires some serious resolve. And it did for Paul Volcker, who was the Fed chairman uh, in the early 80s, it did cause a short-term recession, which you know was relatively severe, uh, but it was short-lived. And then we got to enjoy the 80s and the 90s, which for the most part were two pretty darn good decades. If you were a stock investor, uh, the economy was uh, actually doing quite well uh, through most of those two decades. So uh, hopefully that answers your question. Yep. And I would concur. And kind of to go to the second part of that one, Brian, is that, uh, uh, you know, would you agree that the Fed was too slow raising interest rates this time? Um, you know, and that that's kind of a that's kind of a political one too, is because uh, I think we've found, you, you know, the uh, the Fed chairman he just kept saying, "Yeah, I don't think we're ready yet. I don't think we're ready yet." We've kind of come to find in the in the latter half too that he was really kind of saying really, I just want to make sure that I have a job for the next four years and then mm -hmm. we'll get really aggressive with it, which is basically what he did. Yeah. I just, he, um, got, re, he got reappointed for four years here uh, yeah. earlier this year. Well, all of a sudden, yeah, now that his job is safe. <laughs> so right. yeah, there, there was, there was definitely some politics to that. Um, and, you know, the other side of it too, is there was an awful lot of pressure. You may, you may have remembered the term, you don't hear it anymore, but you may have re remembered the term uh, transitory inflation and uh, the term modern monetary theory was the theory, um, which is clearly not worked out, but uh, was the theory last year is that, hey, the Fed can pretty much print as much money as they want to, uh, to provide unlimited funds to spend on whatever we want to spend. And uh, clearly, it caused a big inflation problem. Um, so it, it was partly from Congress, uh, you know, passing uh, trillions of dollars, uh, probably too much stimulus. In other words, too much money pumped into the economy. Uh, but also, it was the Fed. The, the Fed also contributed trillions towards uh, all the stimulus that went in. So uh, yeah, they, I, I think so. I mean, it, I guess uh, bottom line is they they should have, and they are they're admitting that. Uh, Janet Yellen's admitted that. Uh, Jerome Powell's admitted that. So. At this point, it's not even a question. They know that they they kind of screwed up. But again, with Powell, he wanted to secure another four years. So I, I think he had an ulterior motive. Absolutely. Um, another one here. Do we have a feel for a recovery time frame at this point? Well, again, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to tell because you look around and the numbers that we looked at before with the unemployment rate and so forth, a lot of people would say, well, the economy is doing just fine right now. There's lots of activity happening. Uh, the, the real key is going to be how much inflation comes down on its own versus Fed action. And there's kind of two sides to it. The Fed can only control so much. Uh, this is also because of supply chains. This is also because of, uh, of limited supply, not just because of too much money. So it's kind of both sides of it. 
um, you know, supply chains ease up, you know, if we stop seeing the lockdowns uh, be in China, uh, be, you know, politically, maybe things start to smooth out. There's all kinds of things that kind of go into that. But if supply chains smooth out, supplies increase, then that also you know, will help, right? Because there'll be excess supply that'll bring prices down. So we're hoping for both sides, right? And the Fed is too, frankly. I mean, they're, they're, they're not wanting to be completely responsible for this, right? As far as killing inflation, they're hoping that the supply side ends up uh, helping itself as well. So anybody knows, I mean, it, it's, uh, I think most economists are expecting that the next couple of years are going to be a bit rocky. I mean, they're going to be a bit rocky. Uh, the, the tightening that's happening right now, uh, probably isn't going to have an immediate effect, but it, it may into next year, 2023, 2024. We could see a much lower economy, possible recession, even a severe recession. Uh, and so we're looking to some economists are saying that the Fed might actually start lowering interest rates a year from right now, simply because they would have tightened enough. Inflation comes down, the economy comes down. And they're actually starting to loosen things up because they're worried about a, a really bad recession or deflation. So um, it's anybody's guess. I would expect, I think as an investor, I would expect a lot of volatility the next couple of years. Um, after that, most experts that we're paying attention to are pretty long-term optimistic. And, and we are as well, very long-term optimistic. There, there's a lot of good things that are happening right now that will cause uh, greater productivity, ultimately greater earnings uh, with companies. That's why the stock market's worth anything, right? Is because of, of earnings and, um, and profits and the, those profits growing over time. So uh, short term, just be prepared. Uh, certainly, you know, take whatever measures that you need to on your end to make sure that your financial house is in order because uh, you definitely don't want to go into a, a bear market or a bad economy, not understanding the level of risk you're taking with your investments and not having the, the foundation of your finances set up correctly as far as your cash flow, your debt, your budgeting, uh, your insurance, all the basics that we want to make sure are there. But also don't forget about uh, checking the risk on your investments. Make sure you understand how much risk you're taking uh, to make sure that you're comfortable with that. And also to make sure that it can actually do the job over time with the growth rate that you require that you're uh, asking for. So yeah. we, we're right at the hour right now. Do we have any others? We actually have four more questions. So if we can probably stick to short we'll, answers on these. <laughs> we will. And so for those of you who have to go, um, we'll completely respect that. Uh, thank you for being here. We'll answer the rest of the questions. We also will have a recorded version of this that we're going to put it on our YouTube channel. Uh, we'll send an email out. It'll be in our Keystonian that comes out weekly. Make sure you're getting our emails because that's where you'll get that stuff uh, delivered to you. Uh, for those of you who are on Facebook, again, thanks for joining us. Uh, but again, we'll go on to other questions. Okay. So how differently does the current situation look if you look back two years and kind of skip over the last bad spot last year? So I ask it one more time. Yeah, I'm not sure if yeah. I understand that sure. one as well. Yeah. How differently does the current situation look if you look back two years and skip over the bad spot last year? So if you, I'm not sure if you're referring to COVID, um, you know, in 2000. So, because up until that point, it, and Jeremy mentioned, you know, is the, uh, I think it was the longest expansion as far as numbers of quarters of positive growth, the longest expansion that the U.S. has ever had um, economically in its history. So that was pretty notable. And I remember even giving forecast and halftime presentations kind of leading up to uh, COVID, just saying that these things don't last forever. Uh, we don't know why it'll stop, but it's going to stop. And then, of course, after our forecast 2020, 
funny presentation, COVID hit and it caused a recession, caused all the interruption that we've seen in our lives and the economy. Uh, so if that hadn't happened, gosh, I mean, who knows? Um, who knows? Because you know, politically things could be different. Um, again, supply chains wouldn't have been interrupted. It would have been uh, dramatically different. So, um, yeah, I, I think it would be very different simply because you wouldn't have had the trillions of dollars that have been injected into the economy, um, again, uh, on the fiscal side and from the Fed. And it, it certainly wouldn't have had the disruptions in the supply side of things. So yep. not sure if that answers your question, whoever asked that. But, um, yeah, COVID certainly had a huge impact. And, and that's kind of where we are today is because of them. Yep. Um, and then this one, I'd be happy to chime in on this one. Um, I hear more chatter about being a fiduciary rather than just a CFP. Can you mm -hmm. comment on this? So yeah, in, in my mind, fiduciary really gets kind of overused nowadays. Um, but the thing that in dealing with being a CFP and the testing and all the requirements to it is that a CFP actually has a legal obligation to be that fiduciary. So uh, I think a lot of people kind of claim and say, yes, we're a fiduciary, we're gonna work in your best interest. But the thing that sets a CFP apart is that we actually have to act as that fiduciary in your best manner, or we can lose that CFP credential mm -hmm. um, should the board deem that, that we did not act in your best interest. So that's why we usually recommend working with a CFP because they're held to a higher standard and there is an entire board out there of review that can take that away at any time if we fail to do so. Yeah, and, and legal implications as well, uh, because we, we do have that legal responsibility. And there are other fiduciaries, like CPAs would be a fiduciary, um, a trust officer would be a fiduciary. If you're a power of attorney, you know, for your, your great aunt's uh, accounts, you are a fiduciary. If you're the executor of a will, you're a fiduciary, means that you've got that legal obligation. So I think in the industry, a lot of people, a lot of advisors have been resisting calling themselves a fiduciary because there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. And uh, so that I think that's why the CFP Board of Standards made that change and said, you know what, uh, not a choice. If you're going to be a CFP, you have to act as a fiduciary at all times. Mm -hmm. And we are um, another one here. Uh, there has been much discussion among financial experts that since tech stocks have led the market downturn, look for tech stocks to also lead the rally. What are your thoughts on this? And should we positioning our portfolio to take advantage of higher tech returns over the next several quarters. Yeah, I'd say that's uh, you know true of different economic cycles. Uh, when things kind of go into a down cycle or a bear market, it, it usually is growth stocks that kind of lead the way down, that lead the way up on the other end as well. And we've we've seen that you know somewhat, I guess, over the last few weeks, maybe on a mini level. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's important to have both, though. Uh, it, it's important to have growth stocks, and then the other type of stock we would call a value stock, and that means that it's probably not as high growth as far as its earnings and how fast the company is growing. But a lot of times those companies end up being much more um, affordable. You know, the price that you're paying isn't nearly as much. So you're not paying as much for what you're buying. Uh, in other words, you're getting a better deal for what you're buying. But also those companies can be very profitable. And uh, that that profit actually can result to higher earnings growth. So which is best? Uh, we don't believe one is better than the other. We you definitely want to have both in the portfolios that we manage. Uh, that being said, you know, will we tilt things? Will we overweight things or underweight things based on where we think we are on the cycle? Uh, yes, you know, and, and certainly we pay attention to a lot of experts. 
at uh, at big big financial institutions that uh, you know we look at Morningstar, BlackRock, Fidelity, others. We're paying attention to the experts there as well as far as how we're positioning portfolios. So um, again, you don't want to stick your neck out too far and, and try to guess. Kind of like that slide before where we talked about well, what if you put it all on commodities? What if you put it all on growth stocks? So, um, but again, I, th- I think there's some rough waters ahead as well. I don't think this is it. Unfortunately, you know, it's, it, I think there are some rough waters over the next couple of years. So it may be a little bit too early to to say, yeah, it's over and go 100% growth. Agreed. Yeah, it's it's really tough to time that, and a large part of that depends on your uh, you know risk tolerance and how much mm-hmm. growth oriented you really are. So how much yeah. of that volatility you can stomach. Uh, last one. Uh, when we talk about inflation, we discuss it as a national problem, but isn't it true that it is a global issue? Since we're in a global economy now, can we affect inflation here without other countries addressing the issue at the same time? Yeah, and the good news is most, at least Western economies, are doing the same thing that our Fed is right now. Their central banks are tightening, uh, they're raising interest rates. Uh, so it seems that there is a coordinated effort um, around that. But yes, we are a global economy. And as we've seen from some of the slides in here, some of the comments on China and uh, Ukraine, even you know Ukraine, which is a relatively small economy, uh, you know, from a global GDP standpoint, even Russia is relatively small from a global GDP standpoint. But then you look at how much sunflower oil was produced out of those two countries. Well, the majority of the world supply of that is coming out of those areas. Um, we'll look at semiconductors. Um, an outsized portion come from Taiwan. Well, could that be interrupted? Absolutely. Uh, and that's what we've seen, right, with lockdowns and so forth, is that we ended up having a supply problem there uh, where we we, we couldn't stick chips in electronics and in uh, cars and things like that. So um, we're still grappling with that. But yeah, it does have to be a coordinated effort, both on the supply side and on the central bank side. And that is all for questions today. All right. Great questions, by the way. Thank you for those of you who asked those. And just so you know, too, you see our email addresses up here. We try to keep ourselves pretty available to be able to answer questions. If you shoot us an email or call us, uh, it's usually not that hard to get us on the phone or or get us uh, by email. We try not to pack our schedules too tight where we can't uh, you know, have conversations with people. So Hopefully this resonates with you. Uh, hopefully the, the presentation was helpful today. Uh, we also want to make sure that you're passing this on to anybody that you care about that should be hearing this. You might want to listen to a replay or maybe your spouse couldn't attend or maybe it's a coworker that has been stressed out not knowing what to do. Pass this on to them. Pass on the link. We'll, we'll publish this again on our YouTube channel um, so you can pass this on. Um, also, we've got a lot of other resources. Uh, the Wiser Financial Advisor podcast that comes out weekly each Tuesday. Make sure you're getting our Keystonian. We try to have lots of different stuff out there, right, for people who find it useful. But uh, certainly, I appreciate your time today. Thank you for taking the time out of your day. Um, definitely respect your time and want to make sure that we made the most of it. So um, any feedback that you've got, let us know. Otherwise, have a wonderful day and we'll talk soon. Thank you all. Take care. We love feedback and we'd love it if you would pass it on to me directly at josh at keystonefinancial.com. Also, please stay plugged in with us, get updates on episodes and help us promote the podcast by rating us and also subscribing to us at your favorite podcast service. Have a great week and God bless. This episode has been prepared for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for tax, legal, or accounting advice. You should consult your own tax, legal, and accounting advisors. Investment advisory services offered through Keystone Financial Services and SEC Registered Investment Advisor.